listener production. Hey, happy Friday and welcome to your afternoon briefing. I'm Ben Sion Siebert. Calculators were banned from the maths exams that I sat when I was going through high school. You're not going to have a calculator in your pocket everywhere you go, they said. So you better be able to do your sums in your head. Well, we all know how that ended up. The next technology to send teachers, uni lecturers and people marking assignments all over the world into a bit of a panic has of course been ChatGPT. Educators have had more than a year now to get their act together and respond to it. How do we stop students using it to cheat? How do we tell when they are cheating using ChatGPT? On the other hand, how do we teach students to use this technology effectively because it is very, very useful in some specific things? And it's only going to become more useful and in all likelihood embed itself deeper into our daily lives. In case you missed it, this year for the first time, schools are operating under a new national framework to guide how teachers do this. To talk us through our brave new chat GPT world, here's the briefing producer and former high school teacher Simon Beaton speaking with Dr Jason Zagami from Griffith University's School of Education and Professional Studies. Now, last year, chat GPT was banned across public schools in all states and territories aside from South Australia because of the risk of plagiarism and privacy concerns. But now we have a complete turnaround with a national government framework that's in place from this year. So what's your understanding of what has changed? Well, essentially, every new technology that schools encounter, the particularly school systems, such as education departments, the automatic response is to ban the technology until it's been proven to be useful and risk assessed and all of those processes. So it, was, it wasn't unsurprising that it would be banned. It was probably a little bit quicker than it's ever been banned before. Um, certainly within the week of school starting, they'd all been banned. But to the credit of the federal government and um, Jason Clare in particular, they did set up a, a working group to look at how AI could be used in schools very quickly. Now, the idea was to ensure that schools in preparing students for the eventual workforce could embrace and engage with AI. And so the imperative was to have students coming through the school systems that would feed into that new workplace. And so these AI initiatives were rushed through without going through the long laborious process which normally occurs with any new educational technology. I understand why it would need to be done quite quickly. I imagine that AI use was already quite widespread by students, whether teachers wanted it or not? No, at, at this stage, at the very beginning of last year, um, generative AI had only been popular with the public and majority of students for a couple of months. So it was still very new. And most students hadn't really started gaining traction with it yet. Certainly that happened very quickly during the beginning of the year and has continued to happen. But it was also quite a lot of pressure from teachers using it. Because while it was initially banned for students, teachers could very quickly see the benefits of the technology, much faster than most educational technologies. And so that provided additional impetus. Of course, at the time, there was a whole agenda around reducing teacher workloads, because of a shortage of teachers. And AI was quickly seen as a way of addressing that. How about being used in the classroom? Do you think that teachers 
have a fear or are afraid of, of using it? Oh, yes. As with any new technology, exploring the boundaries of its use, and particularly with the initial impetus around the bands, that really did curtail a lot of experimentation in the public school systems. But the private school system, which didn't have similar um, limitations imposed, have been exploring it all last year and have come up with a range of innovative and effective uses of the technology to support students' learning, particularly around taking it to a higher level of engagement with complex learning concepts, such as critical thinking. One of the criticisms of AI has been around the possibility that it would limit students' critical thinking. So they would just regurgitate whatever it produced. But guided by effective teaching, it is being shown and explored by teachers on how that can greatly improve those processes. Of course, students can really get into lots of complex comparisons created by generative AI that allows them to engage with text and whatever is being studied in much greater detail than they have been in the past. I think that that's absolutely correct and that there's a lot of benefits there for critical thinking. But what about from the side of monitoring? Like, I mean, the framework also covers using AI, not just for text, but also images and videos. And we've already seen students make deepfake porn as a form of cyberbullying. How do we ensure that we aren't encouraging this by teaching them how to use that sort of software? Oh, I think they're going to find out how to use that software in for that purpose is well outside of schools. So there's a strong argument that modelling effective use of technology in schools is the best mechanism to try to counter the inappropriate use of technology outside of schools. Of course, if we don't do anything in schools except say don't do it, then they're going to explore it outside and they'll have no supportive mechanisms other than their parents and their peers to guide them through the appropriate use of the technology. How about in terms of uh, privacy and data protection, cybersecurity? Do we have concerns about this sort of stuff? Oh, yes. Well, that's as of any technology, there are potential misuses at a whole range of levels. But schools are quite um, efficient at getting around such regulations when it suits, um, for example, use of Turnitin involves much more use of student data and student work than generative AI. But because it has a clear educational purpose, that's okay. And there's a range of other technologies that likewise. Our national testing program relies upon the collection of student data and often it's sent overseas and a whole lot of things like that. So yes, it is a concern and it needs to be managed. But generative AI, of all the educational technologies, is probably of least concern because it de-identifies by the very nature of the training process. It's actually one of the main criticisms of generative AI is it's very difficult to actually follow through and find out where information came from that was used to produce um, the outputs. I'd like to speak a bit more broadly now. So way back to the 70s about using calculators through to more recently with laptops and discussions about smartphones and students how different is this debate compared to what we've seen so many times in the past over whether to include new tech in our classrooms? Well, taking the smartphone example, it's quite different to that approach. Mobile phones were banned in schools back in the 90s, essentially to stop teachers um, using them when they were meant to be teaching. Over time, those bans were eroded and forgotten and left out of the policies. But as smartphone technologies have become more and more popular with use by students, more and more problems have occurred 
as a result. And so in response to that, there's now been greater restrictions placed on student use of those. It does, however, strongly impact upon what's going to occur with AI. Of course, one of the big benefits of AI is that it is relational-based. Um, the power of computing over the past 40 years has been on its generalizability, its abstraction. Um, Facebook was made as a tool for ranking female college students, but it was generalizable to a whole lot of other uses. And that's been a real power driving the computing industry for the last 40 years. AI, and because it relies upon relational computing, is very different to that. It's like our, our smartphones. We personalize them. We put our particular apps and particular information and data and address books on them. And if we lose it, it's quite traumatic because it's been individualized. We can't just swap it out with another smartphone really easily. AI systems, particularly as they develop into personal assistants, will do the same. And they're going to be trained and developed. They'll respond to all of our idiosyncrasies, the way we write, the way we speak, the way we create, and they will produce results as we would produce them. And most likely that will be using the format of the smartphone device, which is what we carry around with us all the time and we use all the time. So the AI's personal assistants, as they become more and more developed and popular, will challenge the restrictions on smartphone uses in schools because they will offer a strong competitive advantage for students that have access to these to support their learning over those that don't. From your perspective, what is the biggest risk that we face in using AI in our schools? The biggest risk I see is not preparing students for a world in which AI is ubiquitously used. We can't teach students for a world that no longer exists. Everyone is going to be using AI assistance in whatever profession they're involved in. They're going to vastly improve our productivity we're going to be using them for all of our decision-making processes. So we have to prepare our students for that world. That's the big challenge that we face in education moving forward, not mitigating against the impact of AI on past processes and ways of doing things that are no longer going to be effective, but preparing students for a world in which they are going to need to utilize AI all the time. And more importantly, they're going to have to compete with AI for jobs. They're going to have to be able to be able to redevelop themselves quite regularly as AI overtakes various professions and be able to learn and make to leverage the advantages they have to be able to effectively participate in the economies of tomorrow. It's a brave new world. Thank you, Jason. No problems. Dr. Jason Zagami there, speaking with our producer, Simon Beaton. That's all we have time for in today's Friday afternoon edition of The Briefing. But wait, there's more. On the weekend briefing, what do you have coming up for us, Antoinette? Hey guys, this weekend we are getting spicy, but we're not talking about cooking. I am talking to Josh Sepps, the former ABC broadcaster who left because he thought he was too spicy for the public broadcaster. We talk about his podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations, why he thinks people need to get better at having uncomfortable conversations. We have a couple of uncomfortable moments in our chat. But what I love about Josh and what I think you'll find super interesting is that he is able to take you into often avoided territory and you come out having learned a thing or two and not feeling 
defensive or on the back foot, check out the chat. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thanks, Antoinette. And on Sunday, Tom Tilly chats with SBS journalist and presenter Kumi Taguchi. In the meantime, hit us up on Instagram, search The Briefing Podcast and send us a DM. We're always looking for your feedback, story ideas and guest suggestions. I'm Ben Sion Siebert. Thanks for listening. Listener.